Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Be Healthistic. Today in the show, my dad and I are going to conduct another Ask the Doctors Q&A session where we answer some of the most popular questions you've been asking us on Facebook. We've gathered together some of our most frequently asked inquiries from our health conscious community so that we can share some practical, actionable advice with you. Welcome to Be Healthistic, the podcast that's more than just health and wellness information. It's here to help you explore your options across traditional and natural medicine so that you can make informed decisions for you and your family. This podcast illuminates the whole story about holistic health by providing access to the expertise of doctors Steve and Drew Sinatra, who together have decades of integrative health experience. Be Healthistic is powered by our friends at Healthy Directions. Now, let's join our hosts. Hi, folks. If you like what you hear today and you want to listen to future conversations on all things integrative and holistic health, subscribe to our podcast at BeHealthisticPodcast.com. Also, check out and subscribe to the Healthy Directions YouTube channel, which features video versions of our episodes plus extra videos you won't want to miss. And finally, we have more with me, Dr. Drew Sinatra, my dad, Dr. Steve Sinatra, and other health experts at HealthyDirections.com. So let's get started with a heart health question for you, Dad. How does my family history affect my heart health? Sure, that's a good question. And I can tell you this, that um, if you have a family history where a mother or a father or a grandfather, grandmother, a brother or a sister has a sudden death uh, before age 50, and that's the cutoff, uh, I get concerned. And uh, when I saw family histories like that, I did an intense evaluation of what I call toxic blood syndrome. In other words, I would check their C-reactive protein, their homocysteine, their LP little a. Uh, I would test even the genetic markers like the APL2 allele, for example. Uh, in other words, I would, I would get these genetic markers because when you do have a sudden death or an early heart attack in a family, that's a warning that something is amiss. And basically you have to do a really good screen of these people. I would even check fasting insulin levels and fasting blood sugars, you know, anything I can do to stir up the mix, to try to be a detective, to figure out, is there something in that family history that I can correct as a cardiologist and a surviving member that could make them vulnerable to a heart attack or even a sudden death for that matter. So uh, yes, I would, I would look at these parameters very carefully. Yeah, so family health certainly, uh, or family health history for that matter does affect or can affect your health. Correct. Yeah, okay. The next question is, my doctor wants me to go on a cholesterol lowering drug. What else can I try first? I mean, the easiest thing is to give up sugar. Uh, in other words, uh, sugar is one of the biggest factors that gets transmitted into cholesterol in the body. Why is that? Well, you gain weight on sugar. You get an insulin response with sugar. And insulin is a very, what we call, endothelial, unfriendly uh, hormone. Mm -hmm. So um, cutting back on sugar is the easiest thing. Um, the next thing I like is I like citrus bergamot. I've been using it for years. Um, you know, it comes from Calabria. It, you know, from Sicily, uh, it does have a good effect on uh, HDL and LDL. And um, uh, it's virtually, um, there's virtually no side effects. Now, it does have 
um, some very minor statin properties because it's like it, it has some HMG co-reductase inhibiting uh, capabilities in it. But I never seen any side effects with citrus bergamot. And I always would start low, like 500 milligrams and maybe go to 1,000 milligrams. So, you know, my short answer is, again, avoid sugar and then citrus uh, bergamot next. And what, what about niacin? I'm sure a lot of our listeners are, are wondering about niacin as a cholesterol-lowering Niacin vitamin. works. I can tell you uh, it, it does work. The problem with niacin is the hot flash. And I don't like the long-acting niacins. Uh, in other words, the ones that don't give you the hot flash. The ones that do give you the hot flush, so to speak, they work. I mean, they, ha they have a good impact on, on blood lipids. But a lot of people can't tolerate the hot flush. And I, I would use niacin and LP little A, for example. And, uh, you know, many times my patients could, could not get up to a gram of quick acting niacin a day because, you know, the, the heat sensation was just too much for them. And, and Dad, while we're on the subject here of, of cholesterol lowering, and when, when someone comes in, let's say we've got a, a gentleman who is 50 years old and his total cholesterol is at 210, but his LDL cholesterol is at 140. And let's say he's got no family history and he has no risk factors himself for heart disease. What are your thoughts or your conversation around that uh, in terms of getting the LDL down? You know, at, at that point, if, if he's clean, he has no other risk factors, he's not overweight. Uh, the only thing I would tell him is to, I would ask him about his diet. I would ask him how much sugar he's eating in the diet. I would ask him uh, how many healthy fats he's taking in, how many healthy proteins, of, you know, along those lines. I certainly wouldn't reach for a drug. Uh, to treat that. I mean, look, the average Frenchman in Europe, for example, has an average cholesterol of 275, but yet they have the lowest incidence of heart disease in Western Europe. Yeah. So we have to look at cholesterol. And, you know, some people may say it could be olive oil, it could be the French paradox with red wine and stuff like that. But, um, you know, with a negative family history, I, w I wouldn't worry about it. Well, it's so amazing because the elevated uh, cholesterol and LDL that we sometimes see on lab work, that's probably the number one thing that we discuss in a visit with our patients because everyone's asking questions around cholesterol. There's this major fear around it. They come in, they see their lab value, and almost they're sort of like shaking in their seat saying, oh my gosh, I have high cholesterol, I have a high LDL, what do I need to do? So I'm, I'm happy that you answered it that way because I feel like sometimes doctors, uh, they, they jump too quickly to prescribe a statin or another cholesterol-lowering medication when you may not necessarily need to start there. Yeah, and somebody like yourself who um, uh, is a naturopath, um, you use probiotics on a regular basis. So basically, have you seen probiotics uh, have, an, have an impact on cholesterol? You know, apparently they, apparently they do. Uh, there can be small decreases uh, using uh, probiotics in terms of cholesterol reduction. Um, definitely not the first thing that I, you know, jump to in terms of cholesterol lowering, but you are correct. The research does suggest that they have a cholesterol lowering effect. Well, what type of situation would you use a probiotic? Well, you know, probiotics, we'll step back and sort of talk about the, the, the gut in general. I mean, we have, we have literally trillions of, of you know, organisms in our, our gut. There's all these bacteria, there's yeast, there's even viruses, there's protozoa. And when you digest food, I mean, it's going through your entire you know, gastrointestinal tract, the organisms themselves in your gut are playing a role with that digestion. So probiotics are uh, certain bacteria, or they can be yeast as well, that you can get from your food. So you can, you can eat these in the form of uh, sauerkraut and kimchi, uh, beet kvass, uh, tempeh, miso, 
And of course, you know, kombucha is one of these very popular drinks out there that does in fact contain probiotics. Um, and you can also take probiotics in uh, supplement form. And a lot of these are, are, are research-driven or research uh, strains that we know have a certain effect, you know, with a condition like IBS or maybe uh, IBD. Um, so really, there's certain strains out there that have an affinity uh, to help with certain conditions, one of which can be to help with cholesterol lowering. Yeah. In fact, uh, when you were with me the other day, I ordered a sandwich with sauerkraut, remember? The Reuben. Yeah, because I tell you, I think sauerkraut is one of the healthiest foods you can eat because not only does it act like a probiotic, it also acts like a prebiotic. So the prebiotics actually feed the probiotics. Isn't that correct? Yeah, that, that is correct. And, and so going back to probiotics really quick, just so we sort of understand their function, they're going to help your body digest food. Um, they also actually help your body produce certain vitamins like vitamin A or vitamin K or some B vitamins. Um, they're really going to compete with pathogenic organisms in your gut to make sure that there's no, you know, E. coli, salmonella that are adhering to the intestinal lining. Um, and also the probiotics, they, they secrete these compounds called defensins, which are actually antimicrobial in nature. And these can actually protect your body from other pathogenic organisms. So probiotics really have lots of function. Then there's the prebiotic, which you just mentioned, which is really essentially the, the food or the fuel that the probiotics are using to do their function. And so we get a lot of that prebiotic through fiber. Uh, there's certain, you know, insoluble fibers and there's soluble fibers and um, there's certain really, you know, prebiotic rich uh, foods, might, which might include like Jerusalem artichoke or dandelion, uh, you know, garlic, onion, those sorts of things. Those are all really good to, to really act as a substrate for fuel to help feed those probiotics. Right, right. Let me ask you this. I mean, um, do probiotics and prebiotics, um, are they really instrumental in like healing the healthy gut? I mean, or the leaky gut? I mean, as a natural path, you must be dealing with that on a day-to-day -day basis. I mean, as a cardiologist, I mean, I never dealt with that. I mean, mm -hmm. even, even years ago. But in the last 10 or 20 years, this whole leaky gut, you know, scenario of patients has really surfaced. I mean, a pro probably a lot of it's come from, the, you know, people eating a lot of GMOs, for example. They don't know it. Uh, right. A lot of wheat, for example, uh, you know, may cause that. But but as a natural path, I mean, what's the role of leaky gut in all of this? I'm yeah. yeah no, it's because as a cardiologist, I don't know too much about it. I mean, I've read a lot about it. But I'm sure you're seeing a lot more patients with that, uh, you know, affliction right now. Well, you know, Dad, when I was in naturopathic medical school way back, I started in 2002, there was talk back then of leaky gut. But in the conventional literature, you know, in, in modern medicine, that was certainly not recognized. The other term that may have been recognized at that time was increased intestinal permeability. So that's what a lot of conventional physicians knew of back then. And, of course, there's this lactulose mannitol test that you can do via the urine in order to determine if someone, uh, you know, does have a leaky gut. So over the last two decades, this concept of leaky gut has really come about. And it's fascinating, really, because normally, you know, the cells lining your intestines, are, they're, they're tightly bound together, okay? So you can think of it like there's glue holding the cells together. And what happens with leaky gut is that glue, um, it tends to break down. And so you can have uh, food particles, you can have proteins, you can have bacteria, yeast, kind of go through those cells, um, you know, through, through that intestinal lining into your bloodstream. And as a result, your immune system starts to react to those different proteins or compounds that are coming through the intestinal lining that normally shouldn't be passing through there. 
And as a result, your immune system gets activated. And so, you know, downstream effects that can occur from this might include uh, joint pain because a lot of those immune complexes might be deposited in the joints. Uh, people might experience something like a, you know, like a fibromyalgia or a chronic fatigue where there's lots of fatigue and malaise. Um, people can also experience, obviously, more localized effects in the belly, like with bloating, or they may develop, you know, food sensitivities or something like that, or a condition like IBS could form, yeah. right? Irritable bowel syndrome. And, and so the problem with understanding and, and diagnosing and treating leaky gut is, uh, is, is really seeing the whole picture, because you're right. You mentioned some factors that might cause leaky gut. And you can spend, uh, you know, 20, 30 minutes with the patient going over all these factors, the antibiotics, the steroids, the stress they're under, the glyphosates, the GMO, the gluten, food allergies, et cetera. And then you need to really focus on sort of well, what, what could be happening symptomatically if there is leaky gut. And in terms of testing, there aren't that really great tests out there yet. I mean, you can certainly do a zonulin test on a stool sample. Many different labs out there run it. I, I tend to run it via uh, GI map. I have no affiliation with that company, but I do find that they run a pretty good test. And so if someone comes back with an elevation of zonulin, then you know there's likely some leaky gut that's occurring. And then we need to have a discussion around treating that leaky gut. So it's very important. I think that more physicians are really uh, understanding more these days uh, what leaky gut is, how to diagnose it, and then how to treat it. And I do think that um, there are lots of conditions and symptoms that are associated with it. Yeah, and uh, even as a heart specialist, I mean, uh, uh, it wasn't called leaky gut back then, but uh, I remember seeing patients uh, who would come in with palpitations, you know, PVCs, PACs, emotional stress induced, but it was emotional stress that was induced by leaky gut, but we didn't call it leaky gut, you know? And right. They would have like uh, gas, for example, a bloating or abdominal discomfort, a right upper quadrant pain, you know, after certain foods. Um, and it's, I'll never forget it, Drew. I would see patients with gallbladder situations, you know, developing PVCs. Mm -hmm. So the gut and the heart are connected. And even more so now, you know, with, uh, so, I mean, leaky gut can be a genesis for cardiac problems. I mean, like I said, years ago, I thought it was gallbladder induced, but if the leaky gut causes a gallbladder to, 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 to create a hyperactivity in that situation, then it can lead to the heart. So it's just amazing how the whole gut, you know, including the myocardium, the, the heart, the pericardium, it's all connected. It's just amazing. Well, I, Hippocrates was once uh, said to uh, or quoted as saying, uh, when in doubt, treat the gut. So when it's obviously doubt. something that a lot of doctors should should focus on and really learn more about. Um, now, Dad, what about um, what about stress and anxiety in terms of uh, increasing a risk for heart risk? Can you can you speak to that? That was one of our listener questions here. Oh, yeah. I mean, look, look, I mean, even this leaky gut situation causes a lot of stress and anxiety for people. And, I, and again, I would see people with they would come in with palpitations. In other words, it was really the anxiety of the heart skipping that would bring them in. But the genesis was the gut. <laughs> but I didn't know about it about it back then in detail like, I, you know, I do now. No, stress and tension are enormous factors for the heart. There's no doubt about it, especially in COVID right now, uh, you know, mm -hmm. and, and it's mm -hmm. this day and age of COVID. Uh, people are putting out a lot more adrenaline, a lot more noradrenaline. Blood pressures are getting higher. Um, you know, people are trapped in their homes. They, they have, there's more panic, more anxiety, and more fear. And uh, what happens here is we get a discharge of uh, hormones in the body, 
and the adrenaline and noradrenaline and the cortisol get that, that gets discharged from our adrenal glands, this has a big impact on the heart. So the most important thing that you know we needed to do is basically ground our body, um, um, you know, try to release the emotional stress. I think crying is one of the best ways. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in, in other words, just you know, t- try to let down into your body. Again, avoid the things that can be triggers, like sugar can be a trigger, certainly. You know, inappropriate foods, um, wheat can be a trigger in people. So in other words, all the different hormonal systems are connected in the body. So if you do have a trigger and um, you know what the trigger is, whether it's food or stress or tension or anxiety, you know, it, it could be the aging cat where the aging cat is, you know, disturbing everybody in the house. I mean, I've seen it happen. People have brought it up to me. Yeah. So it's just whatever it is, hopefully you can ameliorate the stressful situation and that'll have a calming effect on the heart. You know, Dad, when it comes to stress in the heart, what I always think about uh, as a condition is hypertension or high blood pressure. Now, what else should we think of in terms of a heart condition that could be stress related? Is there any other one that, that kind of stands out to you? Well, I mean, the one that really stands out and one of the reasons why I wrote the book Heartbreak and Heart Disease was Takasubo syndrome. Mm. I mean, I call it heartbreak and heart disease, but this, this is a real syndrome. It was reported by the Japanese in the late 1990s where sudden death and myocardial infarction or cardiac or lethal cardiac arrhythmias were due to overwhelming bad news or heartbreak. So, again, you know, the heart's a very vulnerable organ and it's very it's very vulnerable to emotional stress. Um, that's why when we're confronted with heartbreaking situations, you know, um, death of a loved one, death of a pet, um, you know, overwhelming illness in somebody, even COVID-19 in somebody who uh, uh, is is developing uh, complications. The most important thing to do is when you're faced with these, you know, circumstances, if you can let down into your feelings and let down into your emotion and, and literally cry it out, that's one of the best ways of discharging the hormones that get rocketed. And you mentioned high blood pressure. High blood pressure, a lot of it is due to surging hormones. You yes. know, in other words, I've seen high blood pressure in so many patients. Drew, it's like driving your car with your brakes on. In other words, these people yes. are so stressed out that that you know that they have no outlets you know they, they can't let down into their feelings they have to just keep performing and keep performing and keep performing uh without any discharge and blood pressure is sore and the things that we don't want to see is a heart attack or a stroke yeah. you know those are the serious pathological situations that can occur in these overwhelming uh, uh situations where you know the emotions just grab hold of us you know Right, right. And, and Dad, another listener question here, which I think is, is fabulous and that a lot of people ask is, is, if someone does have high blood pressure or hypertension, why is it important to remove salt from the diet or, or restrict it? Well, it causes violent expansion. Uh, people don't realize this, but a lot of hypertensives take in salt unknowingly, Drew. You know, mm-hmm. here's what happens. You know, they, they go to a, a, a fast hamburger place and they get a flame broiled chicken that's got about... 1,400 milligrams of sodium. Uh, they make it a dill pickle, less than another 1,000 milligrams of sodium. Right off the bat, they're at two and a half grams of sodium in like maybe one meal. And then, in other words, if they do that two or three times a day, or if they use a salt shaker at home, or, you know, it's just amazing. But I've seen people ingest five, six, seven grams of salt in a day, 
And all of a sudden, their blood pressures are going higher and higher and higher. Mm-hmm. I remember one guy, he was an olive freak. He used to eat olives all the time. <laughs> really salt. salty. Talk about Loaded that. with salt. And uh, his, he came in with, you know, alarming high blood pressure. All I did was take away the olives. <clears throat> Three weeks later, blood pressure came soaring down. So uh, people need to be privy about certain foods that uh, certainly salt-laden foods that, that, that contain <laughs> a lot of salt which will really drive the blood pressure higher. You know why? Because the more salt you take in, the more volume you reabsorb through the kidney. So now you have a volume expansion because whenever you have in salt, the kidney has to compensate by reabsorbing more water. And that's how it works. Got it. Got it. Okay. Okay. Well, Dad, here's another question from our our listeners. Um, Is a glass of red wine a day really good for the heart? Well, this is uh, more of a naturopathic question, too. I mean, this, is, this, is, this is kind of interesting. Well, look, the French paradox, like I mentioned before, you know, the average Frenchman has a cholesterol of 275, but the incidence of, let's say, coronary artery disease in Western France or Western Europe, or even Fr- let's talk about France for that matter, it's very low. It's one of the lowest in Western Europe. So, Could red wine be the answer? Yeah, it could be. Could olive oil be the answer? Sure, it could be. In other words, if you look at the Mediterranean basin, Drew, there are more 100-year-old people in a Mediterranean basin than the entire world. In fact, Spain and Portugal and Italy just surpassed Okinawa. Look, the average American lives in like, we we, we went back a year. We used to be 79.6. Now we're closer to 78.8 right now. In other words, the average American lives to the late 70s. But the average Frenchman or the average Spaniard or Italian, they live into their mid to late 80s. So there's something wrong with our society, you know, whether it's, you know, what we eat or the emotional stress. I mean, it's probably, you know, a conglomeration of multiple factors, but there's no doubt about it. I mean, uh, you know, diet is a factor. And look, a little red wine is good. Uh, Just remember this. The French have the highest incidence of cirrhosis in the world. (laughs) Remember that. So everything in moderation, everything in moderation. And look, as a functional doctor and as a naturopathic doctor, I mean, you preach moderation all the time, don't you? Absolutely. And, and that's where it's it, listen, if, if drinking a glass of wine for you helps you unwind at the end of the day. Yep. And, uh, you know, you don't have uh, you don't have blood sugar issues and perhaps you're consuming that glass of wine with with some cheese or some sort of protein or fat to help blunt that, you know, insulin response. That oh, you might get you from it. That. That's very important. That's you so know, important. I, I see I see nothing wrong with that as well. And um, the only problem I see is when people they start to, to have, you know, two plus glasses per night. I think that's really pushing pushing the edge there. And, uh, you know, one thing I wanted to ask you, Dad, in terms of since we're on the topic here, red wine, how much is resveratrol playing a role here with, with that heart protection benefit? I mean, like in terms of milligram dose, do, do we know on average about how much resveratrol is in a glass of wine? I would say probably less than a milligram. I mean, uh, you know, as, as, as a conservative estimate. I mean, look, if you drank a bottle of red wine, you probably get a, f- a few milligrams of resveratrol, but we don't right. want to do that. The alcohol will kill you. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a little red wine is, is good. I mean, the polyphenols, and there's no doubt about it. Yeah. They, they make a difference. And, and, and like I said, I mean, I think it's the Mediterranean diet. I, I think it's the combination of, you know, some seafood, a lot of plants, a little olive oil, a little red wine, 
you know, certainly the reduction in stress and tension. Um, I'll, I'll never forget when I met this doctor from Creed. I think we talked about it on a, on a previous podcast. And he told me that, uh, you know, they take two hours, three hours for lunch in Crete. Mm. And, and when I was writing my book, Heartbreak and Heart Disease, when I stumbled across this data that there wasn't one heart attack on the island of Crete for over 10 years, that, that was amazing. That was amazing. And when I mentioned that in the lecture, one of the doctors was from Crete. He came up to me and he, and he, he explained why. So um, I think when it comes to heart disease, just like, you know, like we talked about the, the gut, the heart and the gut are connected and the brain and the heart and the gut are connected. And uh, uh, I think emotional stress is, is a big factor in all three. No doubt about it. Dad, let me comment here on what you just said about the, the what happened in Crete with the lunch being two two hours in duration. Now let's let's right. talk about that because ultimately we don't spend enough time with our meals these days. We we we're so rushed. We're we're grabbing a bagel or something like that in the morning, out the door, eating in the car, you know, swearing at people driving by because we're in traffic. I mean, it's just setting the stage for for really improper and poor digestion. Now these folks in Crete, obviously they're, they're, they're sitting down. I'm sure they're very, uh, in a rested state. Maybe they're being grateful for the food, thankful for the food in front of them. They're having terrific conversation with their friends and family members. And that's all part of the, the dining process, right? I mean, we've sort of lost that these days. We're so focused on just shoveling food in our mouth to, to, you know, help with the, uh, the hunger that we experience that we're not really uh, enjoying that food and allowing it to be properly broken down in the body because I see that a lot of people suffer issues not only gut related but also systemically in the body because they're just scarfing down their food that are typically processed foods or unhealthy foods sugary sugary foods and the whole act of eating we really need to work on that again wouldn't you, wouldn't you, you agree yeah, absolutely you're so right on we, we need to slow down we need to be type b eaters instead of type a's i mean in other words we have to slow down the whole process of eating and and chewing the food and you know getting the saliva in the mouth chewing the food frequently so we you know digestion starts here right true yeah. people yep. think it starts in the gut but it really starts in the mouth with the, with saliva so uh that makes a difference you know i'll never forget i was on the island of corfu uh, in my 30s, uh, I was at a bioenergetic uh, uh, conference in, in Corfu, and uh, people were, you know, sitting at, at outdoor restaurants. But I'll, I'll never forget one of them. At one restaurant, there were men playing chess. You know, these were, and uh, and you know, I'm a chess player. You know that. Yeah. And uh, it didn't make a difference what language you spoke. <laughs> you know, there's one language with chess. You know, and uh, you know. I'll never forget it. I was on a long break and I just sat down and I, I, you know, I asked if I could play this gentleman and he says, sit down. And like, I didn't speak his language. He didn't speak mine, but we had common language in a chess game. Hmm. And what really in, impressed me was that all the people around us were just eating slowly and talking and having conversations. And, and I, I, it's just, you, you're right. In other words, there's something about the European way of living. Uh, uh, where during the day, you know, when these men come together and instead of talking about money or business or, you know, they're talking about their family and about how they're feeling. And, and uh, you know, it, it's so important. It's, it's really so important. And we've gotten away from that, uh, you know, in the American public. With COVID-19, I think we've gone closer to that because families mm. are more integrated right now. You know, they're more yeah. indoors with one another. Right. You know, that can create stress, 
but it also creates more com- communication as well. So, you know, even with the, with the pandemic, uh, you know, we can always find a reframe where we can use the pandemic as a way of really getting closer, you know, to our families as well. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and Dad, I mean, I want to speak to this as well, because you and I have spoke a lot about the autonomic nervous system and how there's a sympathetic branch, which is more of the fight or flight. And there's the parasympathetic branch, which is the more rest and digest branch. And really, in America, we are a sympathetically driven culture. Uh, you look at this island that you were on playing chess with that gentleman and looking around and seeing all the people uh, slowly eating their food in a peaceful environment. They are honoring the parasympathetic nervous system. They're 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 really fostering that relationship with it, which I think we've truly lost in, in America, North America, really, with with fast uh, paced eating and watching the news. I got to say, I, I, the worst thing people can do is watch the news and scarf food into their mouth. I feel like that is just one of the worst ways to, to chew your food and, and consume food because you are you are in a sympathetically driven state watching the news because the news is really only reporting bad things. They're not reporting good things. Um, so if you are going to eat in front of a TV, there are news sort of, you know, there's these feeds that you can look at that actually report positive news. So if you want to read about the news, let's talk about that then. I mean, so you can look at something positive instead of negative, and, and that will actually influence the way that you digest your food. <laughs> right, right. You know, something else just came to mind. When I was in Greece years ago, um, you know, in the marketplaces and in, in these little restaurants, uh, there was like concrete that were like brick and, and stone, you know, roads, you know, in the areas. And uh, people wore a lot of sandals back then. But, you know, when I think about it, people walked barefoot back then as well. And I'm sure I didn't know it back then about what grounding, you know, how grounding heals the body. But you just gave this whole thing to the Russians, right, on grounding. Did, did, did you get that lecture yet? Or is that- we, we, uh, we filmed it yesterday. It was over 90 minutes, my brother. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, and yep. Did you get questions from the Russians? Uh, no, it's just it, unfortunately it was a, it was a pre-recorded one, so oh, yeah, okay. we, we we will get to those questions uh, when the presentation occurs. Yes, <laughs> right, right. But but again, you know, I, I it, it just came into my uh, into my mind. But boy, I'll tell you, um, again, I didn't know about it back then. But you know, I think walking barefoot is is really a key to health as well. You Absolutely, know, because you said it. What does barefoot do? It attenuates the oversympathetic nervous system. Yeah. You see, when you walk barefoot, you're, dry, you, you're raising the parasympathetic, and that's lowering the sympathetic drive, and that's what you want, really want to do. And yeah. look, that's what sugar does. Sugar rockets the sympathetic nervous system. And we know we started with sugar, but again, we want to downgrade the sympathetic nervous system. And as a natural path, you know, the sympathetic nervous system is adversely affected uh, in other words, it adversely affects the immune system. And that's a natural path. I mean, you know, immune health is, re- is really right up your alley. So, you know, maybe we can conclude on how do we support our immune system with digestive health? Oh, that's, well, there, there, there's a huge, that. huge question right there. And uh, maybe this will help our listeners understand this immune health uh, c- connection to the gut and really most of our immune system, they say around 70, 75% is located in and around your intestines in these, uh, the malt and the galt, which are the mucosal and gut associated lymphatic tissue. So there's a whole network of lymphatic tissue and immune cells that are down there. And so imagine if your gut is inflamed. Imagine if you're eating, you know, fried foods or you're eating processed foods with lots of sugar in it. 
you're going to disrupt the the balance of organisms there. And ultimately, those organisms are in contact with the uh, immune tissue. So there's going to be inflammation ensuing, and that's not going to lead to a healthy immune response. So whenever, you know, there's two things here, two things come to mind, Dad. I mean, you can think of the uh, immune system looking at it in the stance of uh, acute immunity, meaning like prevention and colds and flus and such. Now, there's lots of different branches of the immune system that are that are working on that. There's the immune system that we look at when it comes to autoimmunity. And that's sort of a, a more of a dysfunctional immune system. And that's really where we're focusing on that gut health is with the, the autoimmune conditions. Because like you mentioned earlier with leaky gut, that's one of the predisposing factors for the development of autoimmune disease. In fact, a lot of researchers out there say that you have to have leaky gut in order to develop an autoimmune disease. So again, there's this huge connection there between the gut in terms of it being healthy and also the health of the immune system. So they, they go hand in hand. So for our listeners, um, if you have a leaky gut, and uh, let's say the food particles, instead of being digested inside the intestine, you know, some of these minute particles leak out into the bloodstream. Then the immune system looks at these little particles and it says, wait a minute, you're not supposed to be here. I got you. You know what I mean? Yep. So that sets up the antigen antibody response. Correct. And basically, that sets up a hyperimmune response and then. You know, the patient goes to the doctor with various symptoms, but it's really the hyperactive immune system that's causing the symptoms. Exactly. And it gets confusing when, let's say, someone eats a food and they develop uh, itchy skin or something. And then so maybe they get diagnosed with a dermatitis or an eczema. And, you know, it, it's sort of it's, it's hard to figure out really like what, what's what's causing this. Oh, a skin manifestation. Oh, my goodness. Could that be coming from the gut? Yes, in fact, it could. And so. That's why you need to look systemically in the body. Look at every symptom that person's having and figure out, could it be related to the gut? Not all, not all the time, of course, it is, but sometimes it's possible. Yeah, and, and even some of the foods we mentioned, I mean, like, uh, for example, we talked about red wine. Well, some mm. people can't tolerate sulfites in red wine and they get a headache. I mean, and, 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 and that's a factor as well. So in other words, I think one of the takeaways in, in this little chat that we have, if, mm. if somebody eats a food and all of a sudden they notice either the next morning or even a few hours later, an, a, a new symptom in their body, what they need to think about is, hey, what did I eat you know, the night before or what did I eat a few hours before? Because the body always tells the truth yes. and the body is trying to heal itself. So the body is trying to give you a message. And in that message, it creates a symptom. A lot of us deny those symptoms or a lot of us, you know, may, may come to a doctor and, you know, discuss our symptoms. But basically um, what we needed to do as, as you know, as an MD, as, and, as, as an ND is empower our patients to use these certain clues where they can really develop insight more into themselves. And that's what it's all about. Well, Dad, what you just said there is the naturopathic slash functional medicine framework that all practitioners work on. So you've, you've got it already ingrained in your brain. That's beautiful. I told you I've always wanted to be a natural path. <laughs> so, so, Drew, um, as a leaky gut specialist, uh, have you seen any heartburn as a symptom? Because, see, one of the things that brought a lot of patients to my office was that they would have heartburn, but they think but they thought it was due to the heart. Mm -hmm. And, it, you know, because heartburn can be a symptom of heart disease. I mean, the typical symptom, it can be pressure in the chest, you know, a crushing sensation. 
But some of my patients had a burning sensation that wasn't GI related. When I put them on a treadmill, for example, and uh, I dropped their SD segments and they had coronary ischemia or coronary insufficiency, some of my patients said, doctor, I'm having that heartburn-like symptom. It was like a burn in the chest, but it wasn't heartburn. It mm. was cardiac related. So mm. that's a fine line between, you know, what your specialty is and what my specialty is. So heartburn can be a symptom of, I suppose, leaky gut or any GI symptoms, but certainly can be a symptom of heart disease as well. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that you say that because I never really thought of heartburn being related to leaky gut, essentially because it's we're, high, we're talking higher up here in the esophagus. Um, is there a leaky esophagus? Perhaps there could be. But it's interesting, though, that I think one, you know, differentiation we can make there with with heart related versus esophagus GI related would be, do you get that sensation after eating meals? Right. Right. And so so if people are eating a, a very heavy meal or wh whatever sort of meal that, meal that they're eating and they tend to get that discomfort there behind the sternum, right, or the breastbone there. That's that's a sign that's likely heartburn that's coming from, um, you know, the stomach. Obviously, sometimes, you know, acid can be related to this. Sometimes um, too much acid, sometimes too little acid or it's acid in the wrong place that could be uh, leading to that. But everything that we talked about today, Dad, everything we talked about in terms of the uh, chewing your food, the uh, environment that you're in, in terms of creating a very peaceful, parasympathetically driven place to be not watching the news, being stressed out, setting up the environment for your body to properly digest foods. That's number one. That's absolutely number one when you're looking at treating heartburn because, again, if you're just putting food in your mouth as a way to uh, satisfy your hunger and you're not chewing well, you're likely going to have some issues down the road in terms of heartburn. So here's some other things that you can do that people may not know of. Oftentimes, people can do heel drops, and this is when they, they take a glass of water around, you know, four to eight ounces, they drink it, and then they stand up on their, their tippy toes and they let down really quickly. So it's, it's, you're dropping on your heels. And if you do that around 10 times, that can sometimes kind of help. And if there's a hiatal hernia, particularly bring that stomach that might be uh, going up through the esophagus back down, uh, more anatomically aligned. <laughs> then some folks benefit from elevating the bed six inches at night. I've really heard that's been tremendously helpful for a lot of people. Um, and that's really sort of working with gravity, uh, you know, with your body there. And then, of course, we talked about food allergies already, food sensitivities, removing those foods, like you were saying, Dad, that you know you have a reaction to. Like, you know, you personally, bell peppers don't do well in terms oh, yeah. of your oh, heart. Yeah, right? your heartburn, I can't so. do the nitrates. And how did you, you know, figure that out? You, you did it by trial and error. Right, trial and error. And the other thing, too, is digestive enzymes. I think digestive enzymes are really, really crucial. Yep. Um, and again, you know, um, when I started to use digestive enzymes at Healthy Directions 15, 20 years ago, um, and I had patients come in where they would come in with these chest-related symptoms, but yet I put them on a treadmill and I would reassure them about their hearts. It's amazing. Yeah. Simple digestive enzymes worked in a lot of these people yeah. where, you know, instead of, you know, developing symptoms in a chest like bloating or gas or whatever – where, you know, the symptoms were in the, you know, they, they came up to the upper esophagus or the chest area. Look, it's hard to tell the difference between the heart and the esophagus. But when I put them on digestive enzymes, many, many of these people, you know, they were home free. In other words, yeah, I, I, I'll never forget. I had one guy, he, I, I saw him in the office and he gave me a hug. And I go, what's that for? He goes, 
whatever those those pills he gave me, they worked. They took care of my problem. So I, I tell you, it's just amazing that you know your patients can be your best you know your best messengers. There's no doubt about it. Well, Dad, if you take a step back from that and look at why someone would be deficient in enzymes, what have we been talking all about today so far? Well, stress. 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 Yeah, so, so if you're in a sympathetically driven state. They're juices. They're putting out these, these enzymes all over the place. And, and again, I think that's one of the reasons why pancreatic cancer is on the rise. I, I think people are, mm. are, are uh, just like – they're avoiding so many of their enzymes. They're, they're wasting their enzymes. They're overdosing on their enzymes. And then when you really need it to digest food, uh, it's lacking. So that's yeah. why digestive enzymes, you know, amylase, lipase, I mean, they're all really uh, proteases. Yeah. All these digestive enzymes are exceedingly important. In fact, um, you know, I do digestive enzymes after every meal. I mean, I just, it's like brushing my teeth at night. Whenever yeah, I have I, a meal, I, I pop some digestive enzymes. I do too. And I'm, I'm younger you know, than you too. You know, one of my colleagues, the late Marcus Lowe, I don't know if you knew Marcus. He was a I did. I met him once. Yeah. Great guy. Great guy. And uh, he was the one that really got me onto digestive enzymes, you know, a couple of decades ago. I mean, just a wonderful person. And uh, I, he was, he was right on when it came to digestive enzymes. And again, the natural path like you, amazing. Oh, that's fantastic. That's great. So, Drew, you know, we're, we're talking about uh, alternative medicine and, uh, you know, conventional medicine, then there's naturopathic medicine and and functional medicine. I mean, it's sort of a hodgepodge. I mean, I mean, yeah. what, I mean, what is the difference between functional medicine and naturopathic medicine? I mean, or is there a difference? Uh, that, that's that's a great question. And I, I think um, when I was in school, functional medicine didn't exist. It was it was naturopathic medicine. That was really what people went to in terms of learning all this sort of integrative medicine, treating the underlying causes, right, treating the whole person. These are all a lot of sort of naturopathic philosophies. And I, I think um, I, I may be angering some people out there by saying this, but um, I think functional medicine uh, has has taken a lot of those principles, which are amazing and brought it into the functional medicine community. Now, I consider myself a functional medicine doctor, too. I consider myself an integrative medicine doctor, too. So to me, that's, terms- that's the best word. I think integrative medicine yeah. is sort of the pinnacle. I mean, yeah. everything flows underneath integrative medicine. Yeah. I'll tell you this. I love working with functional medicine doctors. If they want to call me up and discuss a patient case, that's fantastic because we're, we're, we're speaking the same language, right? Yeah. Um, so I, I really appreciate this uh, emergence of functional medicine because not only can you practice it if you're a naturopathic doctor, a medical doctor, a doctor of osteopathy or a DO, you can be a nurse practitioner, right? Yeah. Um, you can be someone that doesn't really have a degree that can't prescribe pharmaceuticals. You can still be a health coach that has learned functional medicine, and you're working with these clients on their diet, lifestyle, supplements, um, you know, their, their, their genetic profiles in terms of, you know, like using something like strategy, and like we talked about with Dr. Ben Lynch. There's all these different ways that you can sort of use functional medicine. And the, the greatest thing about it is, you know, anyone can learn it. I even think that our listeners, what you're learning these days, this is functional medicine, folks. This is really functional medicine. So, Take it, take it home and use it every day. <laughs> well said. So before we wrap up the show today, we're going to share some wellness wisdom with our listeners. Dad, since we were generally focused on heart and gut health today, let's each share one big pearl of wisdom with regard to our specialties. I'll share one easy thing you can do for your gut health in a minute, but why don't you go first and give our listeners one easy thing 
they can do for their heart health? I'll tell you, the quickest thing that comes to my mind is just eliminate some sugar on a daily basis. If you have to have a soda, um, just, you know, try another beverage. In other words, if, if, if soda is your thing, you know, try mixing half the soda with seltzer water just to cut back on the sugar. You know, people don't realize this, but like a 12-ounce can of cola contains, you know, 15 to 16 teaspoons of sugar. It's like outrageous. It's like crazy. So like... If you get, if you have to have a soda, if that's in, if, if, if you're addicted to soda, let's say, I would dilute it with seltzer water. In other words, just dilute it. Uh, be aware of how much sugar you put in, into your body. Because remember, especially during a pandemic, remember this, sugar has an impact. It stifles those white blood cells. It, it creates immune system decline. During the pandemic, the least amount of sugar you put into your body, the better. Oh, that's a great tip, Dad. Uh, for mine, I'm going to say this. You are in charge of what you put in your body, okay? Now, there's great marketing out there. There's fancy labels. There's hyped up marketing that will sell you anything that has sugar in it and processed foods and such. Don't buy those things. They're not good for you. And there's no one above you saying, hey, this isn't good for your health. You are the one that is in charge of your health and bringing in good food. So when you're in the supermarket, Stay away from the middle aisles. Of course, you got to buy some things there, but really stay in the outside aisles where there's lots of fruits and vegetables and such and, and focus on buying those foods because those are real foods. Those are whole foods. And um, you are ultimately in charge of what you put in your mouth and it can make just a drastic change in your health. So I'm putting you in the driver's seat. <laughs> well said, Drew. Well said. That's our show for today, folks. If you have a question or an idea for a show topic, please send us an email or share a post with us on Facebook. And remember, if you like what you heard today and you want to be an active member of the Be Healthistic community, subscribe to our podcast at BeHealthisticPodcast.com or on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your favorites. You can also find more great content and information from us and the Healthy Directions team at HealthyDirections.com. I'm Dr. Drew Sinatra. And I'm Dr. Steve Sinatra. And this is Be Healthistic. Thanks for listening to Be Healthistic, powered by our friends at Healthy Directions with Drs. Drew and Steve Sinatra. See you next time.